so grateful for this special day that we can come together and the uh, fellowship that we enjoy with this, uh, this class. We thank you for all that are represented in this class and the, uh, the lives that they live and the Christian fellowship that we're able to enjoy. We pause at this time to thank you and to offer our gratitude for all the blessings that you provide for us, blessings that um, we certainly don't deserve. <coughs> we ask that you would uh, bless our church and uh, the challenges that um, our church faces in providing a uh, ministry to a diverse community. We ask that you would be with our ministers and give them uh, strength and courage and understanding as they face these challenges. We uh, thank you for the those that are represented in this group, uh, those that uh, are sick, we ask that you give them uh, strength and courage and comfort. We ask that you be with us uh, this week as we celebrate the freedom of this, uh, this special country. Um, we ask that uh, you forgive us in all the ways that fail that we fail you, and, and for these things we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. And thank you for going to the mic. Well, I knew my Linda lesson. <laughs> Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. How many of you have had a chance to uh, meet Ryan Beaver so far, our new Minister of Young Adults? Um, I was checking with Ryan last week on his first Sunday to check. I thought maybe when they hired him that he would be taking over this Sunday school class. <laughs> Since this class was originally started as the Virgil Anderson Young Adult class. I'm right about that, right? I mean, I know my history. Long time ago. A couple years ago, a couple years back. Um, he told me he had no intention of taking this class, so I guess you're still stuck with me. So, there you have it. That's a good thing. Well, we don't know if that's a good thing or not, but that's, that's the way it is. As they say, it is what it is. Um, this summer we're talking about uh, images and metaphors uh, of God, and have been sort of starting off with some familiar ones, and um, going to move to some more obscure ones as we go, um, or maybe not obscure, but less familiar ones. And so we started with uh, father or parent. Um, last week we did friend. And um, one of the things we didn't uh, quite get to last week 
I know it's hard for you to imagine that there are things that I didn't get to, like, um, but there actually were things I didn't get to. Um, we were talking about Jesus uh, befriending us, and um, one of the things that uh, we would have talked about if, um, if I'd gone all the way till lunchtime um, was the fact that uh, Jesus himself was accused vociferously of being a friend of sinners, right? Um, in fact, that was the thing that scandalized, while Jesus was alive, that was the thing that scandalized people the most. Right? And this group over here needs, the, they, they just got it once, they need it again. Uh, it was pretty light the first time through, it looked like to me. So, uh, and we're Baptists today. We're going to pass it until we get what we need. Yeah. We got a new pastor on staff, folks. We got to, you know, got to step it up here. You know, Paul talks about that the the cross of Christ was a scandal, and it certainly was. But while while Jesus was alive, the scandal was who he hung out with, right? People continue to insist, you cannot be who people say you are. Because if you were, you wouldn't be friends. You wouldn't be eating with these people. I mean, Jesus' table fellowship was the thing that scandalized who he sat down and ate with because we all know that who you eat with says something about not only who you are, but who you regard other people to be. You don't just eat with anybody. Most of us don't. Right? I don't know if you think about that or not, but most of you either consciously or subconsciously pay attention to who you eat with. Because it says something. It always has in every culture. Who you eat with says something about who you are and who Jesus ate with. Notorious sinners in people's eyes. Right? said something about who he was. In fact, Jesus knew it said something about who he was. It wasn't by happenstance. So Jesus' table fellowship was a, a critical part of his friendship. It's rare to have a friend that you won't eat with. Do you have any friends that you won't eat with? Maybe former friends you won't eat with. But that makes the point, right? I mean, part of, part of the intimacy, there are few things more intimate in our daily social interactions than eating with another person. And again, that's sort of cross-culturally, across history. To eat with somebody is an act of intimacy. And it has a kind of leveling action to it too, doesn't it? Right? I mean, when you eat with somebody, you're both recognizing that we're needy people. I have, I have to eat at least three times a day. Right? Don't have to. I choose to eat at least three times a day. Maybe you do too. It's pretty common. Right? So you can make out that you're something, but you still, just like everybody else, got to eat. I mean, and if you don't, you die. It's just plain and simple. So there's something leveling. And Jesus, so we talked last week about Jesus 
condescending to, to take human flesh, condescending to be one of us, condescending, God condescends to bring who God is into speech, as limited as speech is, right? As limited as speech is. That God still is willing, God is still willing to be brought to speech. And God's, when God takes flesh, God's willing to sit down and eat with us, to be our friend. And in fact, one of the most beautiful visions of the end of all things, right, is this great banquet, right? This great banquet that God is the host of to which we all are gathered, right? And that's interesting that that's, you can think of all the possible images that Christians might have for God's ultimate goal. But to be at table with one another and with God is, is a beautiful image. So picking up on that, um, I thought this week, um, since a lot of you are going to be having picnics and other kinds of things to celebrate the 4th of July, and we've done father and friend, I thought this week we would do food. <laughs> right? Um, so, so it ties in with last week's that Jesus shared. Uh, Jesus was sometimes hosted, but more than not, Jesus wasn't the host of the meals. Jesus was willing to be hosted. Uh, but today's Communion Sunday, for those of you who've already been, those of you who might uh, go to service later, it's Communion Sunday, where we recognize that uh, Christ is the host of this table. Um, but the the kind of paradox of the table, of course, is Jesus isn't just host. Jesus is the bread of life, right? And it's interesting that in some Christian circles, that little piece of bread that you eat is called the host, right? Which is kind of interesting. So Jesus is both the one who welcomes us to the table, who makes the table possible, and is also the one who gives himself for us to consume. So today we want to reflect a little bit about Jesus as uh, the bread of life, as is recorded in the Gospel of John chapter 6. So let's just do a little survey here, because sure this is an interesting group, a diverse group, a sophisticated group, if I might say so, as I can tell. Um, so when you think of, when you allow yourself to think of Jesus as the bread of life, if Jesus is the bread of life, um, what kind of bread is he? What do you imagine? And here's one of those very rare places where I allow you to speak. <laughs> just, just a word. What kind of bread? 
Sourdough, because he perpetuates himself. Oh, sourdough, because he perpetuates himself. Very clever. Multigrain. Multigrain. Okay. What's it? Risen bread. Risen bread. This is a clever group. Self-rising. <laughs> Actually, Jesus didn't raise, God raised Jesus from the dead, so I thought someone was going to get there, though. <laughs> what else? That's all the kind of bread you all eat? Biscuits with sourdough bread. Bris biscuits with gravy. There you go. See, what's interesting, I mean, one of the reasons... Um, that we're, we're talking about these different images for God, and this is hard for me, uh, I'm gonna be honest with you, um, is because when we read these scriptural images, they all sound just uh, removed enough from our everyday lives, a lot of us, that they sort of sound like biblical. Like, God is king. That sounds like biblical. God is Fortress. That sounds biblical. Right? God as rock. Not that we don't come into those contact with those things, but most of us don't have regular, you know, exchanges with kings. I mean I don't. I don't know the circles you run in. You're again you're a pretty sophisticated group. Maybe you do. Um, but I don't. I mean kings just sound like really ancient things. And uh, God is shepherd. Well, I mean, I grew up in a farming community and there were sheep across the street, but my next door neighbor didn't think of himself as a shepherd. He was a farmer. He had a John Deere tractor. I mean, he, he had sheep, but he didn't think of himself as a shepherd. He didn't run, you know, didn't have a staff and he didn't sleep out with the sheep at night. And, you know, so a lot of those just seem so distant. But the danger of that, of course, is it just makes God seem a little more abstract. But What's powerful about those images, and the part that I can't, I'm not quite there yet, but I, I want to be able to get there, it goes back to this condescension thing, that God's willing to somehow be understood through everyday things, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. Right? I mean, to say God was king was not something obscure the people of his day to say that God was a shepherd was not something obscure. In fact, that, that might have been just a little bit scandalous in that day, right? Because shepherds didn't always have a great reputation. You know, we kind of romanticize shepherds, but it wasn't necessarily a romantic job, right? Um, so to think of God as a rock, or I mean, those are just kind of everyday things. And I sometimes think if we were if we took the risk to say, you know, looking at our everyday lives, what would our everyday lives tell us potentially about God? Now, there's a lot about that that makes me really nervous. <laughs> um, but I want, I want to say that just to kind of remind us of really how extraordinary it is that God is willing to be revealed to say something of my character can be revealed through our life with everyday things. And so today it's bread. 
I mean, what could be more every day than bread? Um, now, it's, it's even more complicated in our culture today because we have this kind of love-hate relationship with bread now, right? Um, I don't know where you are on all the, you know, the diets that you've tried or given up on or your, your children or grandchildren are trying, but, you know, carbohydrates are evil now. And so for a lot of people, you know, bread is bad. But for most of the history of the world, that's what people ate. I mean, that was the one staple. Um, it's hard to trace the history of bread. I did a little research this week to try to see how far back can we trace people eating something that you could call bread, even if you and I wouldn't recognize it, right? Somehow mashing up grain and somehow cooking it enough, even if it was by the sun, in order to get the sustenance made. And it's 26, 27,000 years ago, maybe, right? Um, so there was bread before wonder, right? Um, most of you know that, right? Um, yeah, and we don't have time today to rehearse the, the story of Wonder Bread, but I read a lot about that this week, too. It's pretty fascinating to think about the history of white bread, right? Which really means, you know, bread with no nutrition in it unless we put it back in, right? That's why it's fortified, because white bread had all the nutrients taken out of it. Um, but I digress. But Jesus talks about himself as the bread of life. And he does that in the context of, uh, in, in the sixth chapter of John, uh, after he's fed people with these five barley loaves and two fish that you recall, uh, this famous feeding of Jesus, which is his only uh, miracle other than uh, his resurrection, which is recorded in all four gospels. And John's version's got a, a little bit, a lot more elaboration than the others. Uh, and it has these five barley loaves, which you may know was, I mean, barley loaves were not like really fancy bread. They were, that's what the poor ate. Just simple little barley loaves. Um, and Jesus does this miraculous feeding. And then... He, he talks a little bit about it with his disciples because they're really confused, and so are the people. As you can imagine, after he's, he's done this, people follow him everywhere. It's like meal ticket, right? I mean, who, they wanted to make him king, right? It's like, this is the guy who we want as king, right? If he can do that, I mean, who wouldn't want that, that guy to be king? So Jesus kind of slips out um, goes to the other side of the sea. Then he comes across the sea, right, in the middle of the night uh, to his disciples walking on the water. And then when they get to the other side, he starts having this conversation. People say, well, where did you go, Jesus? And Jesus goes, you don't really care where I went. You just want me to feed you. Right? Um, and, then, and so then he has this discourse about bread in chapter 6. So let's just read a little bit of it, just to remind you what he says about 
this. This is verse 26 of chapter 6. He says, I tell you, you they say, where did you come from? He says, you are looking for me not because you saw, not because you saw signs of this miracle, but because you're still, you want the fill of, you ate the fill of your loaves. I'm struggling, Dana. Dana gave me new glasses this week. <laughs> <laughs> Turn the book upside down. Yeah. <laughs> this is actually the first time. I got my new glasses on Friday. This is the first time I've stood up here and tried to find, like, where's the focus? <laughs> you did a good job. It's just, it's me. I gotta, I gotta adjust. Okay. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> May need the Braille version, surely. Okay. Here we go. You are looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you trust in him whom he has sent. And then they say, well, what sign? They want a sign. What sign are you going to give us so that we may see it and trust you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So it's like, well, we belong to this long tradition where Moses and the ancestors, I mean, they were given this bread from heaven to eat. So what you got? Show us something. We're supposed to trust in you. Show us. Jesus says, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Which kind of echoes. I mean, just two chapters earlier, remember Jesus had that encounter with the woman at the well where he offers her living water that she'll never be thirsty. And she says, sir, we're going to get that water. Right? So, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever trusts in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. What's it mean to think of? What, what might Jesus trying to be communicated? What would it mean for me to think of, to think of Jesus as the bread of life? Necessity. Yeah, it's kind of it's something that's a necessity, isn't it? That's something that's deeply have to have. It's essential. And it, as soon as I say that, I find myself checking myself, if I'm honest. Right. Um, different people have different routines when they get up in the morning. I don't know what your routine is, if you get the coffee maker going or if you get, I mean, I don't know. 
I don't need to know. Um, some people like you know to get a, a bite to eat right when they wake up. Some people can't do that. They just need to wait a little while, be up an hour or so, and then, then they're ready to eat. Um, but most of us are up for too long, my hunch is, before we're pretty clear, we need to break our fast, right? Night is a fast. You're not eating overnight, so that's why we call it breakfast. We're breaking this fast. Oh, light bulbs just went on. It's like, I didn't know that. <laughs> All these years. <laughs> yeah, you're actually eating again. And your stomach is growling, and your body is saying, I need something to eat. But I have to confess, I mean, how many days have I woken up hungry for God? I mean, honestly, when I woke up with just this hunger for God and the things of God, knowing that even more than my oatmeal or my Honey Nut Cheerios or whatever it is that you eat for breakfast, more than that, I need God. I mean, do I really hunger? I mean, I know what hunger is. And so do you. Um, but we hunger for, we all have these deep human hungers for things other than food. I mean, all of us have a deep hunger, for example, to be, to be known. Well, to be clear, our hunger is to be known and still loved, even though we're known. Some of us are a little afraid to be known, if we're honest. I mean, we want to be, again, it's kind of love-hate relationship. We want to be known, but we worry that if people knew us, they might not like us. If they really knew, if you really knew. But we still have this deep hunger to be known. I don't really know anyone who just doesn't want to be known. It's a deep hunger inside of us. Deep hunger to be, to be loved. Right? To have someone who cares about our well-being, who seeks our well-being. We have a deep hunger for that. And clearly, being known and being loved are related. If scripture is to be trusted, we have, we have this deep longing, deep hunger for communion with the one who made us, who, who knows us better than we know ourselves, We have this deep hunger. But where is, 
where is that in my life? I mean, how, how have I ordered my life such that I can be so aware of some of those kinds of hungers and others I can almost ignore? So it does seem like when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, he is pointing, he is trying to suggest that there's something about this communion with Jesus that is, that is vital to our life. Um, and it's so easy in my everyday life to make my relationship with God sort of tangential a little bit of embroidery around the rest of my life. I like having it, it's a nice thing, but it, how often is it, if I'm honest, is it like essential? Is it, the, is it the thing that actually is the bread of life? It's what sustains my daily life. I wonder if Jesus is not only talking about the sort of essential, necessary character of this communion, but also uh, maybe uh, pointing to delight. I love bread. I mean, I'm pretty sure if you said you can have anything to eat that you want, right? I would have my good friend David, who is a master bread maker, I'd have him bake me one of his loaves of bread, and I would be sitting at his kitchen table when it came out of the oven. I would slather it with butter, and I would be perfectly content. I don't know, for my money, that there's much that's better than that. There's something, I take great delight. Or my mother's banana bread. That I can, just when I say that right now, I, I swear I can taste it, <laughs> right? Uh, I love making banana bread. It's, it's good to have something to do with overripe bananas, right? And uh, who knew that you could take things that other people would throw away and make something so amazing? I mean, what can't be good about it, right? It means sugar and butter, and it's got all the good stuff in it, right? Um, but there's something, I mean, there's something, the there's, it's interesting to me that um, when the psalm says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now again, if you hadn't heard that all your life, you might think that's weird. Tasting God? You don't think of, I mean, God is spirit or God is everywhere. I mean, how do you taste God? But one of the, goes back a little bit to what we were talking about last week, and that is, Bringing God to speech, bringing uh, this God who is beyond our comprehension to speech is not easy. But then there's lots of things in life that aren't easy to bring to speech. I mean, 
I, like a lot of people, when I was in Italy last month, became addicted to Italian gelato. <laughs> and I have a particular uh, affection for the fruit flavors. Some people like all the fancy chocolates and all this. I just like the intense fruit flavor. We found one gelato stand that, that made mango. If you closed your eyes and ate it, you swear you were biting into a mango. The flavor was so intense. Um, now I can say that to you, but that's not like tasting it. There's no way that with my words I can get you to taste what I tasted. All I can do is invite you to taste and see. And that's part of what the psalmist is saying. <laughs> Right? That God's goodness, I mean, I can talk about God's goodness all day long. But until you taste and see and delight in that, something's lost. Right? It doesn't quite get there. But I think God, I think Jesus is inviting us to not just see that the bread that he is is essential, necessary, vital, but I also think he wants us to somehow take delight, right? Delight in, in being wrapped up in this communion, to take delight in it. It's not obligation, I mean, you can think of some things as necessary, you can just think of it as one more obligation. Right? When I was growing up, my parents taught me it was necessary and essential to brush my teeth. And so I do. I don't think I've ever delighted in that. I just did it, because it's like, good for me. I don't really think God wants our relationship to be like that, right? Well, it's good for me. It's essential. I think there's also this sense of delight. Just like, I mean, imagine your favorite kind of bread. I think this is okay, right? Um, I'm pretty sure if I ask you your favorite kind of bread, uh, and we made a list of everybody's in the room. I could be wrong about this, but my hunch is um, none of you would have indicated, well, my favorite kind of bread is, you know, when you go to churches and they have those, you know, tasteless communion wafers. <laughs> that, that's, that's my favorite kind of bread, right? But, you know, the bread that doesn't resemble bread, that if no one told you it was bread, you wouldn't think it was bread. Again, there's an interesting history about where those came about. Um, but I do appreciate, at least in some services at, at Muncie, you're actually allowed to receive bread that looks like bread. Right? No one has to tell you, this is bread. Um, it's like, yeah, I recognize that. Um, but imagine whatever you think of when you think of your favorite bread and the delight that you, and the, and the deep satisfaction, right? 
There's something deeply satisfying about that, about eating bread. And think about all the things that our world tells us will satisfy us. And most of us in this room have been alive long enough to know they don't. They don't ultimately satisfy. They may satisfy for a little while. Gosh, a lot of them don't even satisfy. They don't, we don't get out of the door of the store. We already have buyer's remorse, right? But I think that might be the last thing that Jesus is trying to say here. In that, in being the bread of life, Jesus is offering himself as our deepest satisfaction. And again, I have, I have to ask myself, I mean, how many things have I chased after in one way or another, intentionally or subconsciously in my life, that I thought would satisfy me, only to discover immediately or over time that they didn't ultimately satisfy. They weren't horrible things. They might have been even good things. But they didn't ultimately satisfy my deepest longings. And so here Jesus offers himself as the bread of life. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try in the coming days when I wake up in the morning to try to think about that a little more, to try to enter into that image a little bit. I mean, what, you know, before I have breakfast, try to think about what is really necessary? Uh, where, in what do I take delight? Um, where's my deepest satisfaction? And what would it look like for me this day to be willing to be hosted at a table where Jesus offers himself as that which is necessary, offers himself as a friend of sinners in whom we can take delight, and who offers us the deepest satisfaction that we'll ever know. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks that we have indeed tasted and seen that you are good. We give you thanks that you have taken the risk of being known through human speech, being known through everyday common experiences like eating bread. We pray that by your spirit, our imaginations and our hearts might be enlivened, quickened, 
as we seek to enter more deeply into communion with you. May we truly know and experience our life with you as central and vital. May we delight in you and even trust that you delight in us. And may we find our ultimate deepest satisfaction in daily communion with you. We pray this through the one who offered himself as the bread of life, Jesus Christ. Field. Our, um, well, let me back up. When we left or last Sunday uh, from class, I went home and looked at just how many times Father was in the Bible. Anybody want to take a guess? It depends on which translation. I thought that was interesting how many times it's in. In the King James Version, it's almost a thousand times. In the English Standard Version, it's over a thousand. Um, so just a little side information that I thought was very interesting. And the other thing, um, in Jesus' prayer that he taught us to pray, Our Father. The very second word in it. So it's a, it's a great significance, as we all know. Okay. Our refreshments was brought by Tom Terry, and there was some uh, red velvet cupcakes back there. It's not the Phil Kennison cupcakes, by any means, the red velvet famous cake that he makes, but uh, they were delicious, and we appreciate Tom for that. He's in the melting pot this morning. Uh, good to see Drew with us today, and uh, Dave is back, our Dave Pendleton, strong and alive. <laughs> I want to thank people for their prayers and their their cards. Good for you. I want to thank people for their prayers. The uh, climbing.